The doctor comes in a couple, like 30 seconds later, sits me down and said, Bobby, you have cancer. The hormones that humans have, specifically dopamine and oxytocin, are highly related to the bonds created uh, during generous acts. I think generosity is a mindset and not an event. I talk about this a lot. I'm, a, uh, I'm not perfect at this, but I always try to think of how can I use this uh, for someone's benefit beyond just my own. Remember, they don't have a word for love, but the way that they express love is through action. Because philanthropy mm -hmm. means a love for people. <laughs> That's what it is. You know? Yes. Uh, you know, philos, 100%. love, anthropos, people. Yeah, I mean, the Bible is the ultimate guide to generosity, you know, if I you want to so talk too. about yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we have a process, uh, a specific process designed to help people work through, um, to work through their philanthropic journey. Hey, friends, welcome to Headspace. In this episode of Headspace, we have a conversation that fits perfectly the theme of Headspace, which is that your Headspace today will define your life space tomorrow. I have a conversation with Bob De Pasquale. He is the founder of Initiate Impact Virtual Family Offices, um, a organization that he heads up, his finances and generosity all in one. He's also the author of the book, Personal Finance in a Public World, a very good man with some remarkable stories, remarkable expertise and insights, and um, really an inspiration when it comes to understanding how philanthropy works the impact you can have in the world, and how it changes the way you think and the way you feel about yourself in the long run. So enjoy this episode and my conversation with Bob De Pasquale on Headspace. This episode of Headspace is brought to you by Exponential Life, a coaching program that I offer, and the Ascend Mission Fund, a charity that I co-founded with some friends. Please check those out. Enjoy my conversation with Bob De Pasquale. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel, our podcast, wherever you're listening. Share it with some friends. Enjoy. Hey, Christian. I'm excited to be here, man. It should be a good one. Yes. Yes, it should be. So the backstory, if you guys uh, um, don't know it, is that uh, I was on Bob's show and we talked about stuff and I thought, man, this guy has a lot of heart, a lot of insight. And uh, I was like, look, you should, you should come to on my show. You should come on Headspace and drop some wisdom for us. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so here's my first question to you. Um, what struck me as interesting in your world is that you work with family offices, right? You work in finance. And somehow you also involve generosity as part of your work. Uh, which is an unusual combination, right? So, can you can you tell us how does how how does how do those two things come together in actual not in the in just you talk about it and care about it, but you actually work with people on this? Well, for me, it, you know, I had a career that lasted twelve or thirteen years with the with a financial organization, and I learned a lot about the technical aspects of finance and investing and insurance and saving and retirement and real estate transactions, uh, taxes, estate planning, estate tax, all these different things. And uh, those things are extremely important. Um, but I was pleasantly surprised in my 12 or 13 years of work there that people were very, very generous or, or they desired to be generous. In my previous career before that, I actually worked in, in broadcasting. I have a master's degree in broadcast journalism, believe it or not. And I didn't get that feel in that world. But when I went to the financial world, I kind of expected it to be cutthroat and very selfish. But a lot of the families that would come into our office were very kind, generous people. And it was pleasantly surprising, to be honest with you, Christian. But the problem was that they didn't have the wherewithal or the time or the ability to sift through all of those technical things that needed to be done to actually live out their generosity, to do the best with it. And so that told me that there's a disconnect there. So we need to take people that, uh, people and families that have had success, and, and however you might define that success, it could be financial success, it could be in business, it could be with influence. Uh, maybe, maybe, you know, maybe they've you know written a book or they have an intellectual property, and they have this these resources, and they spend so much time putting them together, and they and they're still spending time maintaining those businesses and resources but they don't have the time to actually live out the giving that they want to live out. 
they don't have the chance to, to spend time with the people that they care about the most. And, and that doesn't necessarily, it's not just family too. They want to spend time with their family, but they also want to spend time in other cultures and helping other people throughout the world. And they couldn't do it. And so okay. when you talk about the family office space, I thought, wouldn't that be cool if we could start an organization that offers family office style services with a focus on helping families be generous? You don't think that that gives the impression to potential clients or people that you're working with that you might be diluting mm -hmm. the main focus, which is sort of the long term success financially of their investments, that kind of thing. You don't think that's it. That's not how it comes across when you talk to people? I mean, it sounds fascinating, but it also mm -hmm. sounds a bit idealistic, right? And sort of, sure. uh, well, how, I'll, how, I'll how do you, you overcome those obstacles, right? <laughs> well, I'll, I'll give you the bold, strong statement in a short answer, and then maybe I can elaborate. Okay. Um, I would say this. I say the main focus for some families is the generosity part. So we're uh -huh. actually addressing that. We are, they want us to concentrate specifically on that. And, you know, I'm not a marketing branding expert, but I've learned a lot about it. And there's 8 million plus people in the world at this point. There's right. people out there who, who have that focus. And, you know, if we're screaming from the rooftops that that's what we specialize in, those people are going to love to talk to us. And there might be some that it rubs the wrong way, and that's okay. I mean, we're not, I'm exactly. not going to be rude about it. If it's yeah. not a good yeah. fit, it's not a good fit. Yeah. So if you're, if you're a family who wants to focus on generosity, call Bob. Okay. I'm, I'm putting, I'm putting the plug for you right away, but I do there agree you with that. You know, like it's bottom line is look, people are looking for different things. Mm -hmm. If you're a financial expert and you can add those layers that are priorities for the family, um, it's, it's great to be able to be known for this. Right. Mm -hmm. And and I don't want to shortchange us. I mean, we have the expert 30 plus years of experience on staff here right. uh, of understanding how to navigate the financial world and make wise investments. So it's not that we don't know how to make money. It's mm -hmm. that we have a different purpose behind why we want to make money. And so that, that I think is the key. So we want to be known for the purpose behind our work being generosity, not the only thing that we know how to do is give money away. That's right, not the thing. In fact, I, I would say this. I mean, Christian, you, could tell, you tell me, but I think the people who are best at giving money away are the ones that know how to accumulate it too. Oh, so absolutely. I think yeah. we're actually highly qualified to help mm -hmm. families build their wealth. I think so too, yeah. And I totally agree. And, and by the way, you know, I, I don't really like the term giving back as, as a term mm -hmm. because it basically means that for the longest time, somebody just take, took, 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 and now they're giving back. I really don't like that term at all because I think if you are building, if you're providing a service, building, uh, selling a product, building a business, you are giving in that because you're providing a a lot of value to people who pe for the people who want to buy something from you but also you're providing uh careers uh, uh mm -hmm. jobs uh livelihoods for for this whole slew of people for the longest time right so i really believe it's more yes and than either or right um so but you're absolutely right about that yep can i propose a, a new phrase for you please do so Instead of giving back, I like to talk about giving forward. Right. Mm -hmm. And with that mindset, uh, like you said, it's not I've been taking for so long. Now I need to finally I need to give some back. It's I'm forward thinking with my giving. Yeah. And it's not a response to taking. It's mm -hmm. an initiated action. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I and I totally agree with that. And by the way, you know, the, the, the first time we, you and I connected in our first podcast, when I was a guest in your podcast, was we were talking about the, the stuff that I am passionate about and serving mm -hmm. the poor and, you know, the projects that we have working. And we do it not because we want to, we have sort of arrived at a point where we're giving back. It's, it's something that is just essential to life for me, for example, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, so can we talk about that a little bit? What is that? What does prioritizing generosity do for you? Um, it doesn't matter if you're wealthy or not, but what does it do for you exactly? I think generosity is a mindset and not an event. I talk about this a lot whenever I'm oh, that's brilliant. Uh -huh. it, it Giving is something you feel. Mm -hmm. It's certainly something you do, but it's not solely an event or an item. Mm -hmm. or a possession. It's a mindset. And what it does for you, number one, I think, 
Um, and, and you know, it's not even I think, it's I know, because there's scientific proof that humans have a desire to give and to bond with other people. And the way you bond with other people is you give them something. And it doesn't mean you're giving them 50 bucks or a thousand or a million dollars. It doesn't mean you're giving them a toy. You know, it's not a, it's not an act necessarily an act of pity or a response to something that you've done. You know, I hear some people say, oh, my buddy the other day, oh man, I really messed up. I, I better take my wife out to dinner. That's not the giving that I'm talking about. That's a that's a response, an event that's only happening because because something else you, you took or you messed up. Um, what humans desire is to be connected with people, and you can give them your time. You can give them uh, just a, a small kind act of generosity. You give them a piece of your soul, almost. Um, I hate to get too deep and philosophical on you, um, but it's proven uh, that the the hormones that humans have, specifically dopamine and oxytocin are highly related to the bonds created uh, during generous acts. And a friend of mine, her name is Wendy Steele. I've been talking about her a lot lately because these thoughts have been going through my mind. Um, she has a TED talk, a TEDx talk. You can look it up, Wendy Steele TEDx about generosity. And she talks about the power of oxytocin. Uh, if you're female and you've given birth, you've probably heard your doctors or other people talk about or been pregnant. You've talked about oxytocin before. It's in, it's, it, they call it the bonding hormone. It's involved in childbirth, but it's also involved in other bonds that we have with other people. And it's proven, and this is the scientific part of it, it's proven that w when you give something to someone, uh, the, the person who receives a gift gets a hit, if you will, of oxytocin. They feel some kind of bond with the giver. And most people can understand that. It feels good to get a gift, right? Right. It also feels good to give a gift. And you mentioned it just a moment ago. And, you know, we talked, I would encourage anyone to go listen to the episode uh, where, where you were on Speaking of Impact because you did a great job of explaining how, the joys that you feel when you give. So a lot of people will be able to understand. Then the second party that has a benefit from, from the, the act, an act of generosity, they, the giver also feels that hit of oxytocin. But what goes unnoticed and I think is the most powerful force in generosity and the reason why the human race is better when we have givers is that third parties also experience a hit of oxytocin when they just see or experience a gift of an act of generosity just as an onlooker. So uh, the, you know, the example I like to give is if you the other day, no, that, not the other day, man, it's months ago now. And it sounds like a, a tall tale, but I actually saw someone help an old lady cross the street, <laughs> you know, and I'm sure the old lady was very, very thankful. And I'm sure that person felt good about helping someone cross the street. And I'm sitting there in my car watching this happen. And I'm thinking to myself, man, that feels good. Like, that's awesome. Like, you go, guy. You, you go, man. You help that lady out. And it just made me realize, you know, what? that confirms what oh, Wendy was talking about in her TED Talk. I mean, videos like that actually go viral. Why? Because it's such a universal mm -hmm. human thing. We want yep. to serve others. We're wired to serve others. And it's not just the things that, you know, uh, even work. I mean, you get paid for work. But if you're a generous person at work, you make people feel good, right? Even if they're paying you for your work, you're just a generous person. It makes mm -hmm. you feel good, makes, makes them feel good. I believe that's sort of the, the free gift in, in commerce is that the difference between between what has been given and what being something being received is that is that free gift something that can't be bought right it, it, exactly there's no expectation of reciprocity exactly um, yeah and until maybe you understand what what Wendy talks about what I was just talking about until you realize you know what I don't need to get a monetary you know yeah. value mm -hmm. or something back I'm going to get that oxytocin hit I'm going to feel good from it and you start anticipating that. And it's contagious. I mean, it makes you want to give. And you talk about the work, you know, you're really, you know, you're, you're teeing me up here, Christian, because I mean, this is what I love to talk about. Generosity is good business. I mean, yeah. it, it it's so much better when you're working for an organization that has a generous culture. It makes you feel good. It makes you want to help other people. And I, I love to give sports examples. And the most productive teams that I was ever on in my not so professional sports career was the the ones who competed against each other like crazy, like, you know, with intensity, like no other on the practice field. But when it came to the game, I mean, those, it built those bonds like no other. So I don't, I never want to tell an organization to not 
to have some healthy competition between internally. But if you think that in order for yourself to be successful, you have to take someone down in the cubicle next to you, that's not a good culture in your business. Exactly. You know, so the yeah. leaders that can build a culture where everyone wants to help each other and be generous with their time and their resources will have will retain more will retain more employees and customers want to do business with a generous company too. It's perfect. Absolutely. We have this um, this grocery store chain in Texas uh, called HEB. Mm -hmm. And um, HEB is beloved in Texas because they have a reputation for generosity. For example, we had a huge snow, snow, snow apocalypse, we called it, uh, last year. <laughs> and it was like, it was pretty intense. Everything was paralyzed, you know. And um, it, HEB just blew everyone away because people would go into the store that day that it snowed and people were just trying to get water, supplies, that kind of thing. Um, and then over the loudspeakers, they basically said, look, just take take what you need. You don't have to pay. Just go home. Wow. And it made, if, it, it made national news. It wow. made absolutely national news because of the posture that they had of care, right? Wow. Um, so I, I think it's I think it's the future. I think it's good business, absolutely. Um, mm -hmm. And um, it's 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 loving business. It's moral business, right? Uh, which the kind of business that we you want to see, right? With a human face. Um, you you wrote a book called uh, Personal Finance in a Public World, and in the book you mentioned sort of some key events in your life that led you to do what you do, think how you think, and work like mm -hmm. you work, right? And I think, and I wanted to ask you for a couple of ones. One, one, you had a pretty intense health situation early on when you were young. And also the other thing that you mentioned is um, you were, I think, uh, helping a family overseas build a house or something like that. Mm -hmm. And there was, there was an insight, an aha moment there of an emotional connection that that really changed your life and sort of stuck with you. Can you talk about maybe either of those things? Sure. Um, and you're touching on two of my favorite stories and most impactful times of my life. Uh, so, so the reason why I do the work that I do, and, and my work has changed and morphed a little bit uh, in the past couple of years. You alluded to our firm that we have that uh, helps generous families. And I talked a little bit about my former employer but it doesn't matter where I've worked since I was 18 years old or, or even when I wasn't working, uh, when I was just a college student and athlete, um, I've, I've had a generous mindset. Now, in order to execute and live out that generosity, things have changed and I've had to grow. But from the moment, uh, well, that the time in my life when I was 18, which I'll get into, um, it has been a focus of mine. So when I was 18, I don't know about you, but I think a lot of people feel invincible at 18. I mean, nothing can really take you down. I mean, what, what, you're young, you're healthy, you're spry, you're energetic, you know, what could possibly go wrong? Uh, but I, I learned pretty quickly that's not the case. When, when I was 18, I, I went up to Hofstra University in Long Island, New York to play football from South Florida. And my family's from up there. I was actually born up there. I, I was expecting to have the time of my life, get away from home, you know, explore a new part of the world or a new part of the country at least. Uh, experience new weather, spend time with family members that I barely ever got to see, get my education. Okay, so maybe education was low on the list, but it was on the list. <laughs> Mom, <laughs> Dad, I promise you I wanted to get my education. Um, but I, I was also going to go play ball. And it was just, it was a great time of life. Well, in a very, very short period of time, uh, the first couple of days of training camp, my first ever training camp as a, as a college football player, uh, I had what I thought was a groin injury. Now, this was the first taste of not being invincible. I don't know if you've ever pulled a groin muscle, but I mean, you can't walk, you can't sit down, you can't twist around. It's, a very, it's hard to sleep. Uh, you know, it, you don't realize that that's that serious of an injury. Well, the rehab, the main rehab exercise that I had to do to, to rehab from this injury was I would sit on a three-wheeled stool and I would shimmy myself across this massive college training room. And you think about it at like 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning, there's probably 100 people in this room, coaches, trainers, players, uh, you know, interns, you name it, all kinds of people. So it was kind of challenging to do this. And it wasn't getting any better. And almost a week went by. And I'm still in there. And one day our, our, our trainer, who's not a big guy, 
uh, very well respected, but not a big guy. In order to get everyone's attention, if he ever wanted to in this room, he had to stand on top of like a box and scream and cup his hands and at the top of his lungs to try to get people to listen to him. Very rarely would it get quiet. Now, it seemed like on this one day, all of a sudden it got dead silent. And it probably didn't. This is the only part of the story I'm exaggerating, I promise. It was dead silent or so it seemed. And he's like, Bobby, they called me Bobby at the time. You got to get back out on the field. Quit being a weakling. Ooh. And I'm thinking to myself, Ouch. all right, I'm trying to, <laughs> right? I'm yeah. trying to prove myself oh, yeah. to my teammates and the coaches. And this trainer is, I don't know, he's probably five, seven, uh, you know, 140 pounds, something, but not a big guy. <laughs> and What'd I'm not say? a big guy either, but I'm, I'm, a, I'm a receiver. You know, there's other 300 plus pounders in the room. But anyway, yeah. I felt like such a loser. And I told him, I, I said to him like later on, I was like, Rick, Rick, I'm seriously not getting any better. Like I'm starting to get concerned. Like someone's got to, you got to do something. Yeah. So he's like, right, I'm going to send you to a doctor. So over a period of the next week or so, I, now I'm 18, so I'm technically an adult, but I'm still a kid, you know, especially right. mentally at that time. I'm still a kid in my mind these days. Anyway, that's my wife. And I went for, I mean, I was driving all over Long Island, New York, getting sonograms, CAT scans, MRIs, every test in the book that known to man, they're pricking me with needles. And these appointments would take forever because I'd get in there and I'd have to fill out all this paperwork that I had no clue. I didn't know what an insurance policy, I didn't know any of the health and any of that stuff. Right. So finally, it's the day that my parents had planned to come up for my first ever college game and college football Saturday here in, in the States. So it's a Thursday, a couple of days before our first game. Now we knew I wasn't playing in the game at this point. And I had another appointment that day. I expected to be in there for a couple hours. And my parents were flying up that morning from Florida to New York. And I got in the appointment and in like two minutes, they call me back. I expected to be there for hours. Two minutes, they call me back. I sit down in the office. The doctor comes in a couple, like 30 seconds later, sits me down and said, Bobby, you have cancer. And I said, what? I mean, my draw dropped, it hit the desk and I was completely silenced. I didn't even know what to say. He goes, I know you're in shock. Oh my We're going to get you in touch with an oncologist, Yeah, uh, but you can go. We'll get, we'll get in touch with you tomorrow. Oh. And I'm like, first of all, I don't even know what an oncologist is. Right. And I... <laughs> there's no way I have cancer. Oh, so, man. It, it was, it, it was, I mean, I, I was just blown away. So right. I walk out of the, the And you were alone. You're, you're not with your parents. Who Are you with like a coach or no. somebody? You're just alone nope. in a... In By a... myself. Oh, By myself, just... some strange office, you know. 1,500, 1,700 miles from home. Oh, that's... By myself. Yeah. Come out of the building. And now my parents were expecting me to be in the appointment for a while. But my mom called me. I think she was going to leave a message. And the moment I walked... It was like... It was God's time. I mean, the moment I walked out of the building, that my phone rang. It was meant to be. My mom's like, hey, you know, we landed. I didn't expect you to answer. How'd the appointment go? And I was like, well, Ma, so about that... (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, I had to tell her what happened. And I mean, she was dead silent, but screaming all at the same time, if you know what I mean. Yeah, of course. And the only thing I remember hearing after a couple seconds was my dad on the other end. He was in the, also in the car with her. And he's like, Susan, Susan, it's my mom's name. Like, what's going on? Like, he could, he knew something was wrong, too. Yeah, he's looking at her probably just mortified and everything. Uh-huh. It, 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 exactly. So. They ended up, uh, so we met, I mean, I got in the car and they were in the car and we met at my uncle's house who still lived in New York, my mom's brother. And we met there and I mean, I hadn't seen my parents this is the longest I've ever been away from home. And, uh, you know, we kind of, we hugged and said a few prayers and shed a bunch of tears and like, we're looking at each other, like what's going on. Wow. So a couple of days later, it's a Saturday now the, the day of our first game. I mean, I wasn't going, I wasn't there. And my uncle's best friend comes over his house and we'd never met the guy and his name was Tim. And he walked up to my parents after just meeting, I just, just met, just met him and, and hands him his keys and said, Bob and Susan, my parents' names, take my car. I can't imagine what you're going through with your, with your son right now, whatever you need the car for, as long as you need it, take it to all the appointments, whatever you need. And, uh, you know, I, I feel really bad for you all. And that was it. That's all he said. Said goodbye. Said goodbye to my aunt and uncle and left. 
And he was there for maybe 15 minutes. That's remarkable. And my parents are looking at each other like, that's crazy. Like, what, what, what an act of generosity. I, they couldn't believe it. Yeah. So a few days go by. It's, it's Monday. I had spoken with my oncologist. And he said, you know, don't drop out of all your classes. You're, you're going to stay. We had decided I was going to stay up in, in New York there to get treated. And I went to my first college class with Tim's car. Everything was good. More appointments. Second day of class was Tuesday morning. And I went into class. All, I mean, pretty normal for whatever your first day of college class is supposed to be like. And I went to the cafeteria and I was hungry. So I grabbed a breakfast burrito. And I'm sitting there and now you remember those televisions that were like, it's like a tube television, old school TV, but hanging from a bracket in the corner of the wall and the ceiling. Oh yeah. In a public place. Oh yeah. Right. You're dating and yourself I, now. Sorry. Yeah. You got like squint to yeah, see, yeah. To see yeah, it. Yeah. It was color. Now I'm not that old. It was okay. color. But, okay. <laughs> but, but it was a tube television, a flat screen, like the one behind me here. Right. And I'm watching the news. Now, I don't know the news station. I, you know, I just moved up to New York. And uh, all of a sudden, a plane flies. They're, they're covering a plane, and it hits the twin tower, one of the twin towers. Oh, my god! And gosh, I'm like, yeah. I'm like, oh, that's crazy. What a horrible accident. So I called my dad. I said, hey, you know, you're watching the news? Like, this is crazy. What's happening? He's like, yeah. And then, I mean, no sooner we start talking, the second plane comes and hits the other tower. Yep. And he's like, oh, Bobby, that's not an accident. You better you better hightail it back to your uncles. Yeah. So I I, I jumped up. I, I, I ran right to the car. I, the, the burrito is probably still sitting there mm-hmm. on the desk, at the counter there in the, in the cafeteria. I leave, hightail it, or tried to hightail it home. It was typically a 15-minute ride from campus to my uncle's. It took me nine hours to get to his neighborhood. And why is that? I everyone this, just everyone just start hitting hit the road because of the attack. Yeah. Is that is that what it, happened? It was just the, the roads were packed. Oh, and really? So I had this master's degree in, in broadcast journalism that I talked about, and I worked in sports radio for a period of time. Um, I I will never ever, as much as I appreciate it, listen to AM radio for nine straight hours in my life ever. Again. <laughs> never again, right? Never again, but it was riveting. I was driving in unbelievable traffic away it with burning towers in the distance and listening to the whole thing on AM radio. And it got to my uncle's neighborhood. It's nighttime now because nine hours later, I ran out of gas in his neighborhood and we had to push my car into the into his driveway. And my parents were there and my aunt and we're all looking at each other like, well, my life might be over because of my diagnosis. Now it looks like the world's coming to an end. Like, what is going on? Yeah. And my aunt was hysterical. My uncle was on business the night before and supposed to fly home that morning. And uh, it was he was in Denver. And so eventually he called. Must have been eight o'clock at night at this point, at least. And he's like, guys, I'm, I'm sorry. I know you're probably panicking. I'm sure you know what's going on. Um but the phones have been out. I've been trying to get a hold of you. I'm okay. I'm stuck in Denver. My, my plane never took off. So we're like, oh, thank God. He goes, but my friend Tim, who you met a few days ago, he was in the towers this morning and he died. And we were like, oh, what a shot that was. And it turns out that Tim worked for the investment bank, Cantor Fitzgerald. Some of you might be familiar with that, uh, with the bank. And apparently Tim and Cantor Fitzgerald in general were very, very generous, very, very generous organization. And so hundreds of people died. If you've heard, if you saw the interview uh, with their leader shortly after that, I mean, he talked about losing his whole team. And um, they donated office space to my uncle's foundation for cystic fibrosis, a disease that my, my cousin has. And so we had a pretty close relationship with, or my uncle did with them. And um there was no one from the foundation in the office that morning, luckily. There was only one lady. Her name is Tammy, uh, still friendly with the family to this day. She got stuck in the subway. She was uncharacteristically late that morning for a silly reason and uh, was in the subway when it all happened and ended up escaping. Um, but, you know, who's to say why Tammy was late that morning, but everyone from Cannon Fitzgerald, including Tim, were in there. And the moral of the story is uh, we don't know how much time we have on this earth. Um, but with the moments that we do have, 
uh, are opportunities to be generous and give back to society or give forward to society that I talked, out, talked about before should be capitalized upon. And it turns out that Tim, Tim O'Brien uh, was one of those people. And so because of Tim's generosity, uh, he made, not only did he make a, an impression on me before 9-11, uh, but, but afterward as well. And so my work and, and, and my mindset for the rest of my life is that I got to do radical, radically generous things like Tim did for me and my family at that moment. Yes, and not wait, right? Because you just yeah. never know, right? This is just a you lifestyle in the present. This is, this is what we should strive to do daily. Um, and it changes everything, I think. Like imagine if everyone did, did this, you know, all over the planet. I think it would have been a very different place to live. Oh, absolutely. And, and there were a whole host of other things that happened in that period. I mean, I got stories for days about that period of time in my life. I mean, I, I, sure. not a day goes by that I don't think about that day. That's, like I said, the only exaggeration I made was about the trainer and, and the training room getting quiet that morning. This is not a gross exaggeration. I think about that time in my life every day. So obviously and, we have you here on the podcast, which means you're survived. So tell, 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 us, tell us about that. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I would never wish chemotherapy and surgery and that sort of work and, and all the other drugs that you have to take to, to mm. stay healthy during that period of time on anyone. Um, but I physically recovered. Uh, I had 20 rounds of chemo, I had surgery, um, you know, various other drugs and giving myself shots. And I you know I alluded to some other stories that I have. And it was a very, very, very tough time physically, mentally and emotionally. How long did it take to recover to actually go through that? Yeah, so it it took about four months to complete all my treatments, maybe mm -hmm. three and a half months or so to complete my treatments. And so physically, um, I had a CAT scan not too long after that, and, it, and I was physically healed, uh, not cured. That's another story, but healed at least. Everything mm -hmm. had all the, um, if you couldn't tell by the, the groin injury that I had, uh, it was testicular cancer, but it had spread up into my abdomen. So... Uh -huh. um, all of the okay. spots and cancer was gone after that, those 20 sessions of chemotherapy in a very, very short period of time. And that's three and a half, four months. But it took me another couple months mentally to get overall to like to work through all of what happened. But the emotions took about two years. I was going to ask you about still that. working through those. Yeah. I mean, I was actually going to ask you about that. I mean, cancer alone will shake you to the, to your core, right? Obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, nine eleven happening around the same time. That's a double whammy. How did it yeah. shape you to how you see the world now? Well, so first of all, the the aspect of generosity and the time that we have on Earth, as I mentioned before, um, that right. that yeah. sticks with me every day. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I I think about though is that I I believe that we all have gifts and skills beyond just generosity. Uh, and the gifts and skills that we have uh, to make the world a better place, and we can express our generosity in, in its max capacity through those gifts and, so, and skills. And so that's something that I think, and it shapes my view too. So in any profession or passion or job or interest or anything that I have, formal or informal, uh, I, I'm not perfect at this, but I always try to think of how can I use this uh, for someone's benefit beyond just my own. And... There's a lot of people out there that I fear don't believe that they can make an impact. They don't believe that their skills are good enough. They have imposter syndrome. They're concerned about, uh, you know, what other people think of them. And that's why self-help books, I think, were so successful for a period of time there and still are, because people need to believe in themselves. And so that, believe it or not, that ultimate weakness from being the invincible 18-year-old that I thought I was has somehow, in a crazy, twisted, ironic way, giving me more confidence in myself. I'm less confident that I'm invincible, but I'm more confident in the things that I'm actually good at. Like the things that I am really good at, which is a very limited amount of things you can ask my family, I'm willing to admit my limited skill set. But in those few things, I'm going to go all out for supporting other people and generosity. And so that's my view as a result of that period of time. That's awesome. I love that. And I'm glad, you know, I'm glad you... It, you turned trauma or suffering into a superpower rather than allow suffering to sort of cripple you forever, right? Like, 
uh, and you never know where it's going to end up, uh, but I think acute trauma tends to limit us for a longer period of time, but I think, you know, do, do, do you have insights into that? Oh, okay, what's the threshold of, okay, this is permanent damage, I'm like permanently damaged in my outlook, or mm. is there no limit? Is, is there no threshold? Mm-hmm. It's just really here in our minds, how we respond uh, to suffering and challenges, things like that. I think the human mind is incredibly adaptable. I think so too. Physically, it's a lot easier to put limits on oneself. And you can see, I mean, I broke my collarbone over a year ago now. All the years of playing football, never broke a bone, rather healthy career. And I ended up breaking my collarbone um, playing Frisbee with a bunch of high schoolers. (laughs) And um, that's 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 a funny story. But I say that because this, clearly I was limited right physically during that period of time but my doctor told me that break in that spot in my bone is the strongest bond between bones in my body Hmm. for the rest of my life now and the chances of me breaking that again are slimmer than me breaking any other bone or breaking the other collarbone doing the same exact thing so that tells me that physically it's easy to to recognize limitation Um, but i can't see it now but believe it or not, it's stronger. So I think the answer to your question is no, there's no limits. And then mentally, absolutely, the, the mind is incredibly adaptable. I, I think mean, so too. When you, yeah. when you go through something, you can go through something else. It, yeah. It's very, very true. As a matter of fact, some of the, I, I really believe that perhaps suffering is not pre-designed. And I mean, obviously, some of it is self-inflicted. Mm-hmm. And yet it's allowed in our life to equip us for something else, right? For service, for th- for thriving, for serving, all of those things. Do you believe in that? Agree. Completely agree. It's it's designed. It's a great way to put it. It's designed to equip us for something else. And if you if you're struggling to realize that through a certain season of life, uh, then you got to dig deep. Uh, I like to ask questions. I, I would share, be open about what's what's hard, and I think you'd be surprised on how encouraging other people's uh, appreciation for your ability to to withstand and withhold uh, not withhold excuse me withstand to be open about it i, I think th- we are equipped and that's another reason why we need to connect with other people because yeah. they can help us realize that talk to me a little bit about that emotional connection that family building a, a home for a family it seems to be this event and insight that changed your perspective on life as well can you tell us more about that you mentioned that yeah absolutely um yes Great questions. You definitely did your homework, Christian. <laughs> I mean, so part of the reason why we were down there, so my previous employer, uh, world's largest donor uh, to Habitat for Humanity, an organization that primarily focuses on adequate housing for people across the world. They have other projects, but I had an opportunity and I've had multiple opportunities to travel to different countries. Uh, we actually ended up going to Mexico one year because we were unable to go to Nicaragua because of some political issues and some safety problems. And so we, we kind of almost threw together, if you will, a trip to Mexico in a short period of time. And we, I hate to say it, I don't want to admit this as the generosity guy, but I was almost a little disappointed about the situation. Um, I wasn't thinking about it in the way that I should have been like, okay, it didn't work out how I expected, but there's a plan here. There's a purpose behind it. We're still going to help somebody. Uh, but it took these events to help me figure that out. And, uh, the situation was this. We were in an indigenous Mayan community in Mexico. Now, those of you who have been to Mexico, I know most of the people I know, the Mexico that they've been to is Cabo or Cozumel, that sort of thing. Great places. Uh, if you're into uh, senior frogs and you like your tequila and you like Mexican food and partying on the beach, beautiful country. But it's also beautiful in other areas. And this indigenous Mayan community was a beautiful community in the middle of Mexico that they didn't even speak uh, Spanish. And I speak, hablo un poquito español, I speak a little bit of Spanish growing up in South Florida. And I thought, oh, this is great. We'll go to Mexico. At least I can communicate just like right. I can in Nicaragua with people. Some yeah. of the other places I've gone to, I don't speak the language. Turns out that they don't even speak Spanish. There was one gentleman that worked for Habitat that did some translating into Spanish. And I mean, I hate to say it, but my Spanish was actually better than some of the people in the community. They spoke a language called Sotzil. And the reason why I'm telling you this, it was very challenging for us to communicate because if I wanted to say something in Sotzil, 
to, to, the, to the family or to the people of the community that we were serving with, I would have to go to Sebastian, the representative, and speak to him in Spanish or, or speak broken Spanish or English, and then he'd have to figure it out and then translate it from English to Spanish and then Spanish to Tzotzil. And it was very complicated. So one of these, one of the days in the middle of the week, we were exhausted. It was a long, I mean, we were working really hard and we took a break and I was looking at our whole team. I was like, man, these people volunteered on short notice to go to, go to Mexico. It's not like it was one of our typical trips where we had months and months to plan. We threw it all together on a really short, on really short notice. And here they are like working their butts off. They looked exhausted. I'm like, there's no way they're going to get back up after this water break and start working again. And mixing cement and pounding pavement, you know, they're just bending uh, rebar. And we, I looked at the group, I said, all right, you know, time for a break. I was like, I know guys, you know, stay motivated. They're like, what do you mean motivated? Like, we're having a great time. And I was like, what? I was like so blown away and like just emotional that they were so excited to participate. So it's like, oh, I got to tell the family. So I had, I came over to Sebastian and I like put my arm around him and I'm like, hey man, like, I just want to let you know, like, we're loving this. This is awesome. Can you tell the family that we love them and we love this work? And he's like, sure, you know, after me kind of like explaining what I meant. And he went over there and it took way longer than expected. He's going back and forth with the girl. And so see, I'm like, what are they talking about? And he came back to me and in so many words, he explained to me, you know, I, I really can't tell them what you're saying because so seal, there's no word for love. And I'm like, what do you mean there's no word for love? That's that's crazy. Like that, how, you did, I was like, Sebastian, you better figure this out. Like you got to explain it to him. So he went back over to her and he's talking. And instead of like looking at each other, like they're confused, I think they started to figure it out. And then, and then they smiled and they hugged and it was this happy moment. And I was like, then I felt like FOMO. I was like, fear of missing out. Like, why am I not part of this happy moment? <laughs> <laughs> so he comes back over to me and he, and he was once again through broken language and figuring out in yeah. so many words, he said, remember, they don't have a word for love, but the way that they express love is through action. And what you oh. all are doing for them is the ultimate expression of love. So basically, and, you don't have to say it, you have to show it, right? You have yes. to demonstrate it. You, you're essentially offering them love and they that's, accept that's it profound. graciously. Oh my gosh. That it is a profound, like, profound insight. Wow, that's remarkable. It, yeah, it was amazing. And when I made that connection with the family, and I mean, it was truly amazing. And I'll tell you a follow-up that doesn't normally come up, but it's, I think it's highly relevant here. We went back to Mexico the following year, and this doesn't always happen. I've had it happen twice now in my career, sure. if you will, with Habitat for Humanity. We went back to that community one day where we had some free time the following year, and we got to see that family. And I was talking about oxytocin earlier. There was so much oxytocin flying around in that moment oh, when we got to yeah. see them. Right. It, it was like we knew them and spent years with them, even though it was only That's five felt, days yeah. a year ago. Yeah, the so connection. It, That's remarkable. It, it was amazing. So, you know, I, I had a similar uh, – it's fascinating uh, that you were talking about indigenous populations and, and mm -hmm. communities. Uh, it, also, my previous employer, this is, I don't know, 15 years ago, something like that. Um, I was um, – working for a large charity called, called uh, Hope Worldwide, and I was the director for Latin America, so I was in charge of nine different countries. And uh, on one of the trips, we were serving a, commun a displaced community of indigenous people in Guatemala, deep in the mountains of Guatemala, who were displaced from the place they lived in because of these landslides, mudslides, that completely destroyed their livelihood, the lake, they used fish from, I mean, it was just unbelievable. Uh, but it was a very similar dynamic because we were serving them and doing all kinds of stuff. And it was the same thing. Like I, I expected to – I speak Spanish fluently. I'm half Chilean, right? So, And I couldn't speak to them because they spoke a, a local language. And it was sort mm -hmm. of the same awkward back and forth and back and forth. And all you could do is connect emotionally because of these smiles and you know gestures and stuff like that. Uh, it's just fascinating to hear this, a very similar story there. Yeah, it was great. It, never forget those moments and the bond with that family is yeah, tremendous. Yeah. yeah, that's fantastic. Wow. And that in so tell me how this informs your worldview now from this deep insight that is very transformative, obviously. Well, I think one of the simplest forms of generosity is that connection. Yeah. And so 
at that moment or that period of time when we came back from that trip, that was a big portion of me making the connection that I alluded to earlier. Like I knew that I wanted to be generous and I, there was a need to and, you know, the limited time that we have here on earth, we don't know. I had already understood all of that at that point based on my experience when I was 18. But at that point, when we finished that trip, I realized that generosity is not as extravagant as I think we make it out to be, you know, mm. and philanthropy gets a bad rap sometimes, I think, because people think they have to be millionaires or have Thank complete you. financial freedom. Yes, yes. I actually, you know, it's it's funny when I when I talk to, when I sort of describe who I am and what I do, uh, I I put philanthropist there. And uh, I remember having this conversation with Deb, my wife, and she was like, you know, philanthropy is like, it's like if you're super rich and you like, you're Bill Gates, that's a philanthropy. What you're doing is charity. And I really, you know, I sort of, wrestled with that a little bit and then I kept it as a as a descriptor word not because of what people perceive it is but for what it actually means because philanthropy mm-hmm. means a love for people <laughs> that's what it is you know yes. uh, you know philos 100%. love anthropos people right you love people you serve people that's philanthropy so I kept it because I thought you know what we should all be philanthropists that's what it means to be a philanthropist right and yes. it doesn't matter if you're a, a Bill Gates kind of successful person or if you have an extra few hours, if you have some sweat equity that you can include, or you can just have a, a small sort of a posture of heart that every little thing you do is generous and you help people, you're a philanthropist. Yeah, 100%. Love how you talk about the definition there. You look at the Greek translation of it. I've read and done so much research on what philanthropy really means and, and yeah. you nailed it, man. What it is yeah yeah loving loving people so you're absolutely right okay so i have a question for you from your website uh i like in the very bottom of the website you quote saint luke and i was like huh he's quoting the bible mm-hmm. what is that all about <laughs> uh what is that all about so i I, I think the, the Bible is the ultimate. Are you a believer? Bible. Are you like a, a, a is is that what it is? You snuck it in there? What is it? Yeah, I mean the Bible is the <laughs> ultimate guide to generosity. You know, if I you want so to talk too. about yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, we want to model our lives after Jesus and what a give. I mean, he's the ultimate sacrifice. And I think some people can be intimidated by the, the, like you don't need and you're not expected to take on the sin of the world, right? Yeah. But if you know that that you've been died for and you're saved and redeemed, then I mean, what a great motivator! Yeah, it changes everything to support other people. Like it's yeah. just it's, that's what it's all about. So, and, and Saint Luke, yes, definitely indicates that on many occasions. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's that's what I figured. You know, I was like, okay, this guy's a Christian, uh, and I knew that already. <laughs> but it's on the website. I'm like, you know, I've got to ask him. Um, so, but I, I do think, on a serious, on a more serious note, you you're absolutely right. This is the the ultimate, the biggest act of generosity in the history of humanity is Jesus dying on the cross so that we may live, right? And I think if you take that seriously, if it's not just mythology, right? You don't have to be a believer, you know, like, but if you, if you, if you embrace, you understand the depth and the beauty of this one thing, of this one event, um, it can actually change, inform the way you live your life forever, right? Amen, brother. Yeah. Amen. So I really believe that too. Okay, so a couple of follow-up questions before we wrap up. One is this. If you are to recommend for, to someone who is listening to this and is sort of reevaluating their, their generosity in general, okay, how do, okay, now that I understand that philanthropy is not for just the, the super rich, but you know, is, there like a, is there a book um, a res- besides, obviously, in, you know, Initiate Impact, which is the resource that you offer, and by the way, I highly recommend you guys look it up. It's on Instagram. It's on Twitter. There's all kinds of really good stuff. The, the podcast. Um, is there are there books that you would recommend for someone to study out to learn about I, this I, stuff? So what I like to do is I like to give you. Um, I, I have a couple of resources of people okay. that have written books, mm-hmm. and there's so many books that I would say. The first thing you, well, we talked about the good book. Obviously, the Bible is a good place to start. Um, and there's plenty of books out there that will help you with habits that I write about in my book. But I want to point out a couple different uh, 
resources for people. So um, there's two people by the name of Sharna Goldsecker and Michael Moody, who wrote a book. One of their books is is called Generation Impact. Um, but you might want to look them up on LinkedIn. They have tremendous resources in their organization. Helps work with people uh, this generation of philanthropist, if you will, but uh, you know, not just from a financial perspective. So they're great people to talk to. Um, then there's a guy I, I'm going to give a plug out to a gentleman out there right now, and his I can't believe his name is slipping my mind at the moment, but he has a podcast called uh, um, Basement. I believe it's called Basement Philanthropy, okay. and it's it. I mean that is such a tremendous resource. It's better than any book I've written on the mindset behind exactly what we're talking about. Um, and it's such a, such a cool, basement such a cool way to look at it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, base, basement philanthropy. Look, look that up. And I b- believe me, if you enjoyed this conversation, th- he's got probably 50 episodes of his podcast and other resources that you would just love. You just eat it up. Sounds good. Thank you for the, for, I mean, thank you for your wisdom, your insights. Um, I want to put a plug mm-hmm. for the work that you do because I think it's the work that we do is the ultimate act of generosity in my mind because this is what we do, you know, eight hours a day. Mm-hmm. Um, so, if some, what would be a good fit uh, for a family or a person to work with uh, with Initiate Impact Virtual Family Offices, which is the I think the the organization that you're a founder of? Sure. So uh, we we work best with generous entrepreneurial type of people that have a drive for a specific cause. Okay. Uh, so if, if, if you find yourself having been successful um, or in business for quite a while and you feel like there's, there's something else that you can use with your gifts and skills other than just building your business to make the world a better place, um, we have a process, uh, a specific process designed to help people work through, um, to work through their philanthropic journey. So it's not just invest my money and help me save taxes to give it away. And it's not just, where do I give my money? It's a whole process to help you and your family figure that out uh, and develop a family mission, have a family mission statement, uh, and and not leave a legacy, but build a legacy uh, mm-hmm. with the resources that you have. So initiateimpact.com, and uh, we'd love to talk to you about it. If you're a giving person or a given driven uh, you know, desire, a person desiring impact in the world, uh, you know, we're your people. If you're maybe on the fence about that, you can give us a call. And like I said earlier, it doesn't mean that we're a great fit. And if we're not, we have plenty of partners who have expertise in other areas that we can you know, refer you or point you in, a, in the right direction. That's wonderful. Thank you. Bob, you're a good man. Thanks for coming on. And uh, please come back with more stories. I, I would love to, man. I'd love to have you back on our show, too. And, and we'll be talking down the line and, and we'll be making an impact and building a generous culture uh, ourselves. So thanks, man.